back to another special episode of the Epic Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Bruce. It's show 157, and I'm joined on the line once again by Sneaky Pete to chat all things Magic Gathering. How are you tonight, Pete? I cannot complain. Um, this is our first episode of December, so I hope everyone's enjoying their winter while we're waiting for the holidays to kick in. Um, if you like what you're hearing, our content is on the Lotus Council website, lotuscouncil.com. And we're on some Discord servers, we have some social media, but that'll all be in the show notes. So, Bruce, if you want to take us away here, uh, what are we talking about today? All right, so we're going to start with some garbage or great. Uh, so our first one, uh, I think this is one of your, your, one of your cards. Yeah. So I'll let you read your first card, because this one is right for you. It is, it is. Um, Dogged Detective is a 2-1 human rogue, so some applicability for some uh, typal decks. Um, it's one colorless, one black. When it enters, surveil two. And whenever an opponent draws their second card each turn, you may return Dogged Detective from your graveyard to your hand. Bruce, at a whopping 22 cents at its lowest, um, what do you think about this card? I think this is a really... Okay, so I like this on a whole bunch of fronts. First off, as a two-drop, this is a sort of card that you're going to be able to get into play pretty early in the game, which we, we've learned in Commander, getting on to getting good value plays low on the curve is just as important in Commander as even if you're playing limited or constructed, it's really important. And this is a good value play um, because I would argue that Surveil 2 is a very potent uh, tack on and little ability attached to this card because of the fact that it allows you to Basically ensure the next time you draw a card, you're going to draw something meaningful. Whether it's a land or a spell or whatever you happen to need, it's going to set you up to draw what you're looking for in most cases. I mean, I understand Surveil 2 is not perfect. You're not There, there could be a situation where you whiff. But Surveil 2 gives you a really good opportunity to draw something good. And then the fact that you can recur it for something as easy as your opponent's drawing a second card... And put it right back in your hand. You don't even need to, you don't there's no there's no mana cost, there's no additional clause, you don't need to pay. Like you you can just do it and it hops right back out of your graveyard, back in your hand, ready to be used all over again. So I think like this is a pretty good inclusion. Um, if particularly if you're playing like if you're playing some sort of graveyard deck where you're you're looking to put things in your bin. Um, I'm thinking Rutstein would be a great example of this, but um, there's a whole bunch of other ones. Like there's lots of things that you know that care about their graveyards, whether it's reanimator strategies or and because it's mono black, it can go in a black blue deck, it can go in a black green deck, it can go in a Esper deck, it can go in lots of places. So it's really flexible, really cheap. Uh, Twenty two cents does not going to break the bank. I think this is strong, and people have not people have not been paying attention to this one. So I think it's really strong. Um, I mean, you're not winning with this, but this is going to help you. Like we said, we're going to talk about later in the show, set you up to have success and and let your deck do the thing it's supposed to do. Yeah, I would say that it enables so many different things, right? It enables descend if you're going for something more uh, current in terms of synergies. Mm -hmm. It it punishes someone for playing anything from like frantic search to brainstorm. Um, yeah. because, you know, say you block with this thing and it goes to your yard and you want to get it back. I mean, this was in that Anello pre-con, so actually it's really strong for copying spells if you're sacrificing things for casualty. Yeah, yeah. Um, even black-white aristocrats, it, it finds a home there. Uh, blue-black, if you're playing, like, rogues or if you're just playing something that needs to move the deck a little bit at an efficient rate. Mm -hmm. It's just neat. I, I don't know. I would definitely consider this if you have it lying around. And I think we've covered this, though. I mean, it's pretty simple to understand that this game's getting faster. And uh, having more action in general is helpful in this game, even if it's not an aggressively statted creature by any means. So let's see. Where is it most commonly played? So obviously it's played in the Anello deck. Where else does it figure? Um, uh, Jaren, Corrupted Bishop. Eloise, Defalia Sleuth, that seems like a good place to put it. Um, Braids, Arisen Nightmare. Oh, I like that. That's a fun synergy. Nalia Darnice, that's the that's the one with the party deck. Yep. That would also be a good place to put it. There are lots of cool things. And this plays with, oh, look at that. Sack outlets. Goody. <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah, I think this is a good card. I think for 22 cents and two mana, I think you're, you're going to get a pack, uh, a card that's going to help you advance your game plan pretty pretty well and uh, make help you uh, put your game plan together. I like it. What do you have for us tonight as well? Well, so I have Subterranean Schooner because I always go looking for new cards out of the new sets, and this card caught my eye because this card looks pretty strong. So one in a blue for a 3-4 vehicle. And it has Crew 1, which gets my attention because Crew 1 on a 3-4 for 2 feels pretty strong, Pete. All right, but let's read what's next. Whenever Subterranean Schooner attacks, target creature that crewed it this turn explores. So, again, low on the curve, cheap to crew, explore. Does it get, do I get your interest? My interest? For sure. It's uh, hard to kill. Right, because you have to play artifact mm -hmm. destruction. You can do it as early as turn three, if you're playing a deck with mana dorks in it as well. You could probably do it on turn two, hypothetically too. So yes, like you play turn one land of War elves, turn two, or yeah, turn two you play this, and I guess turn three you crew it, um, with like extra mana up or something. Yeah. I think explore is just. You know, Explore is really powerful, like Surveil, in the sense where you're looking at more cards in your opponent faster than they can. And uh, it's only $2.50, so I think yeah. you could definitely do some interesting stuff with it. Like, I think we talked about this uh, after last night, last week's show, where uh, if you're able to untap your creatures, or if you tap your creatures for payoffs and you crew it with the schooner... Um, you could crew the schooner and block with the schooner too, like I think, right? And you don't, you yes, don't get the payoff. Or do you get the yeah. payoff? I didn't Well, I mean depends on the well, you don't get the explorer, but you could definitely get the payoff like if you're using a card that taps like a Magda, maybe. Yeah. You know? Um there's lots of cards that have payoffs so when they untap, or the inspired cards from Born of the Gods when they untap. Right. Um so you're giving you the ability to set yourself up to 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 go down that path, which I think is an interesting direction. Um, no, I think the card is strong. I don't, uh, right now, again, looking at on EDH Rec, it only appears in 530 decks. And it really only plays with... So Kozuma, God of the Voyage, uh, Admiral Beckett Brass, because you're looking to get, get your pirates swole, and then Shorakai. Which are really the places where you're going to find it, but I think there's like more possibility with this card than we've currently seen explored, um, and I think it's you know maybe worth our while. Again, what we're noticing, like you said, the curve is people are getting on and the, on the curve lower, and this is going to be a pretty potent impact impact card on turn two to get it down and you know potentially start swinging as early as turn three. Because it's probably going to outclass what most people have on turn three to get a couple of explore triggers, get some value, whether it's counters, put some things in the yard, maybe put your hand, put land in your hand, um, which all of which sounds good to me. So, and then you know later in the game maybe you, I don't know, you get the chance to chump block or you bargain it away or there's other lots of ways to use these sorts of things kicking around. So I think it's probably worth exploring. Um, a little bit more robustly. Yeah. Um, and then our last card, we, we were just talking about this cycle as an overall sort of consideration when deck building. Um, so we have the hideaway discussion would be, well, Sheldock Isle is an example of probably a card that's not played or won't be played um, because no. it's not exactly relevant. And uh, I'll just read this for you briefly. Um, so hideaway is a mechanic that had a specific number attached to it, and you look at that many cards when this permanent will enter. Um, in this case, Sheldock Isle is a land. So when this land enters, look at the top four cards, exile one face down, put the rest on the bottom in a random order. This land enters tapped, and it has a blue, and then uh, you tap it a blue, tap it, you may play the exile card without paying its mana cost if the library has 20 or fewer cards in it. We've seen, you know, rabble rousing, fight rigging, cemetery... Uh, tampering as more uh, modern examples that are very, very good sometimes, even wiretapping as, as well. But um, do you think that, I guess, 
Do you think Wizards will continue to use this mechanic? I feel like it's become almost tricky to see if this is relevant in a game where we have four players, right? And you have to meet certain criteria to get this rolling. So I think the mechanic they're going they're going to continue to 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 use the mechanic as I think the mechanic. What would dissuade wizards from using this mechanic is if it's inherently broken. And right now the clauses on these cards have been suitably restrictive that they're not broken in half. Mosswort Bridge is the land from um, which I've forgotten which set it was. That's land uh, Lorwyn, I think. That it gets probably the most notoriety in, uh, in Commander because of the fact it is a land. Um, mm-hmm. and, th- and the clause to trigger it, if you're playing a green deck, is not overly complicated. Um, the other one, the other lands are a little bit trickier, um, but it's the um, it's the enchantments that I think that are going to garner more interest that we haven't really, that we haven't seen fully explored. Um, and I think, you know, all the clauses on them are pertinent. So if you're playing a tokens deck, Rabble Rousing is your friend. Um, fight Rigging in a different vein is also, you know, a card that people would play for the enchantment alone and then, then potentially use it as the, for the hideaway mechanic. But none of these cards, none of these cards are inherently so overpowered or oppressive that they're going to result in us seeing the game warped around them. They're going to provide interesting incremental value. Um, they have interesting clauses, so I really saw a reason why Wizards wouldn't revisit the mechanic. It just have to make sense thematically with whatever they're doing. I don't know why they elected to put it in New Capenna. I don't know what was so compelling that they needed to put it there. I don't object to it in New Capenna. I think it was an interesting inclusion, but I don't think it was... There certainly wasn't enough hideaway in New Capenna to say, well, here, here's why we have hideaway as a mechanic. Like, this is the standout card. So I think you're going to see it again come back at some point. Um, I think because inherently it doesn't bust anything. Do I think it's good enough for Commander? Yeah, I think if you have a deck that's leaning into one of these themes, then you're going to play the play the the associated enchantment or land. Um, you know, if you're playing an aggressive mill deck, you might play Sheldock Isle to get you or your to get you know whatever value off of it. But um, I don't see this being something that's going to be so oppressive that they're going to say we we can't touch this with a 10 meter pole yeah i said 10 meters because i'm from canada I said meters up here uh, <laughs> with a 10 meter pole um unlike something like storm or some other mechanic that really is problematic for them to, 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 to revisit yeah um in terms of just the way we've seen this mechanic uh sort of steamroll standard it's not going to be like that in commander most of the time no. Um, it's actually an, an impressive feat if you can pull it off. So I welcome this when I'm in, you know, playing games. I'm like, okay, good. I don't play the yeah, lands myself that. because they come in tapped, but I appreciate when people do still play them. Yeah, so. I agree. I think they I think they're interesting. They're an interesting wrinkle to uh, to figure out if they fit what your deck is trying to do. Yeah. Um. So now to move on, we have a quick announcement. Uh, there's a banned list of cards for certain formats not no commander bands or anything like that dockside is still safe which is good for me um because <laughs> i run it in many of my red decks but there you have a, a ban list on wizard's website please check it out if you play pioneer especially and modern um because those formats are the most heavily impacted and uh it's overall pretty interesting takes they have a little video as well about why they decided to remove these cards from certain formats um, the most notable is Fury in Modern and Smuggler's Copter got unbanned in Pioneer. So that's an interesting thing as well. Um, yeah. But check it out real quick. We're not necessarily the podcast that talks about this sort of thing, but we figured it was noteworthy because today is the day. Um, today, so. today is the day. I also do think, audience, that there is a financial ramification um, that may be worth exploring. Um, as Fury has been a very prominent card in modern for a number of months. It has grown to be quite expensive. So it could be that at some point, if you're holding Furies or if you're looking to pick up a Fury, um, 
you might be able to find one at a more reasonable price in the next little bit um, as the demand for its uh, inclusion in modern is um, going to wane. And so it may give you an opportunity if you're looking to pick one up for a deck. So <clears throat> there is a bit of a financial interest interest stake there more than anything. Yeah. So uh, today we're talking about something that actually comes up in these formats a lot, but I think it's equally as important in EDH. Uh, we're going to discuss mulligans. Actually, Bruce, real quick, this happened to me a few days ago. I had a hand that I should have not kept, and I got steamrolled promptly by my by the players I was with. Um, and I thought the hand was okay, because I had a few uh, cards that are very impactful when they do hit the board. The problem was I didn't have any ramp, and I didn't have any way to get my colors. Um, so by the time I got my commander out, the game was pretty much over at that yeah. point. So I figured when... when, when uh, Shorzy and I come come around when Bruce and I come around and decide what we want to talk about each week. We were we're like let's let's talk about this because this is very important now with how fast the format has become. So Bruce, you want to start with what we're gonna? Yeah, no, I I want to echo Pete's uh, Pete's sentiment because I I've also experienced recently the fact that you know I I played a number of games where I found that I wasn't really ever in the game and I felt by and large it was because I made choices at the outset of the game before we even started playing cards on the table where I was, I had set myself up to not have success by neglecting to include certain things in my hand. Um, I, I should have taken advantage of the, the, the ability to mulligan um, a little bit more aggressively to see if I could get a better starting seven to give myself an opportunity to really be in the game rather than be a, mostly a spectator and, un, and, and unimpactful in the game. But anyway, we're talking mulligan tonight. So first, so first off, we have to assume that some number of players listening to this podcast have never played or are unfamiliar with playing a lot of Magic, and so they may never have had the chance to mulligan. So, so Bruce, a mulligan is... Pardon what me? is a mulligan? What, what is, is a mulligan? mulligan? <laughs> so a mulligan is when you uh, you look at your opening hand uh, and you are, decide that, you, you know, for whatever reason, it's not a keepable hand, whether it's you're missing, you're missing a key thing, lands usually... Um, but sometimes you're missing something else that you really were hoping to have in your opening hand. Um, and you have the ability to put that seven shuffle back in your library and to draw another seven cards. Um, now in commander, the way a mulligan works is that you can, there is a free mulligan. So because we know that our, we're going to be investing a significant amount of time in our game. Um, most play groups have a, continued the practice of having a free mulligan. Uh, it's, yep something the, the, the rules committee encourages. I recognize there are play groups out there that don't abide by the rules committee and may have their own house rules around mulliganing. Um, but we, you know, most players, if you go to a tournament or somewhere else, there is a free mulligan associated with that. So you have a free mulligan, you draw your starting set, you draw a second starting seven and you can decide from there. If after that, 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 that second opportunity to mulligan, you have had, you still don't like your starting seven, you can put it back. And look at a, another seven. But now at this point, if you decide to keep your hand, you have to put the, a card back. If you, again, if you don't like that, you go mulligan again. Now you can, have, you can only keep five cards. You got to put two of them back. And wow. you can go right down to, you know, three or four cards, depending on what you might like to do. If you're a competitive a competitive uh, EDH player, you might aggress uh, mulligan aggressively down to a three or four card hand. Yep. If you're a casual player, you might find that you okay. Maybe I'll I'll keep a six, because you know you're going to get a draw a, a draw to start your turn. So you're not going to be too far behind on cards. And the starting six is a better a better starting s series of cards for you anyway. But that's what essentially what a mulligan is um, to make sure that you, you have an opportunity to look at enough cards and ensure that you have enough cards in hand that you can play your game and deploy a strategy rather than sitting there missing a key resource so that you can't play the game. Yeah, so uh, looking at it for a commander's perspective, uh, this looks very different depending on if you are proactively trying to get ahead of your opponents when you play spells and cast things, or reactive in the sense that you are a little bit slower, but you might have more removal or something of that sort to disrupt your opponents to protect you from losing the game or what have you. So... We usually try uh, to think about this when we um, are looking into our fresh seven, right? Our first look at our deck. Um, 
are we trying to ask questions or answer questions in the game? Uh, it can be a challenge regarding what we're starting with. So um, just a few things to consider, Bruce. What would you look into on average? What's like your baseline acceptability for most of your decks? Because we are playing mostly casual here on this podcast. So for for me, um, a baseline casual sort of deck would be, um, I probably would be looking to at least a minimum of three lands in my hand. Um, I would I would like to you know feel reassured that if I can hit my third land drop, because usually by the time I hit my third land drop, I can usually deploy something, um, whether it's a another ramp spell, a, a cultivate, or a or a, or a or a mana rock or something. Um, I can usually make some sort of game action where I can start getting myself on board. So three lands is probably the minimum that I'm looking to keep in my hand. I have kept two landers and have usually lived to regret it. There has been the time where I kept the infamous one lander and a Sol Ring. Wow, did that not go well. So audience, mm-hmm. um, like, don't get greedy. I know you may have the Sol Ring, but like, I would say three lands is the minimum I'm looking for in any of my decks. Um, beyond that... I'm looking for things that I want to be able to cast that are going to be on curve or close to my curve. So um, I assume that if I can draw, if I play three lands in my first three turns, somewhere in the first three draw steps, I'm going to draw my land number four. Sure. So that's my my assumption. I'm going to be able to do that. It's a reasonable Uh, assumption too. Um, I think so. And and I don't want to do hypogeometric math behind that. (laughs) There are people I know who do that. Or able to do well, that, right? There's algorithms on, on computer. On a, there's algorithms on the internet that allow <laughs> you to do that. So if you really want to find out what the probability is of drawing a fourth land in the first <laughs> four draw steps of the game, sure. you can do that. Um, but anyway, by the time I hit turn four, I need to have something I could do. If I don't, if I have only five and six drops, then I'm not keeping the hand anyway. Even with three three lands, I'm like, mm, no, I'm not. I'm not doing this um, because I know for a fact that like waiting to try. Waiting to deploy something for the first time on turn five is too late. So um, I would be happier with a couple of two drops or a three drop. Um, If I have a four, okay. Um, I would probably, one of them I would be looking to probably have either be a draw spell or a piece of interaction of some sort. So probably two creatures, an interaction spell, a couple of lands, and and ultimately a piece of acceleration would be ideal. Like that's top cheese right there um that's what i would like yeah yeah. go ahead no i was just gonna say like i i'm a little bit more specific regarding like what kind of deck i'm playing and we're gonna get into that a little bit more as we get uh later on into this discussion but like if i'm playing a an aggressive deck uh, i usually can get away with taking two or three land hands depending on the curve right Mm -hmm. um and then the more like slow decks or the more nuanced decks which we'll have a few of those sample hands later in the show notes. Um, you really have to think about like, what does that turn four and five look like? Um, so, I think overall though, just uh, just finding a keepable seven uh, can be a challenge, right? If you don't know how your deck runs. Well, yeah, and that's I think one of the points that's that's promo- provoking this conversation with us, Pete, is both you and I have recognized that. Um, we probably commander players probably need to be a little bit more aggressive the way we mulligan because we we assume that we're going to have time to draw and set up and do whatever. Well, the format is going in such a direction that that may not be the case anymore. I would have said in 2015, yes, I could, I could, if I just had a mix of random spells and lands in my hand, I could play the game irregardless of what's going on. Um, but unfortunately the way, well, not unfortunately, but the way the game is now constructed with, with, a, with a plentitude of two mana rocks of, uh, fast mana and acceleration and, uh, lots of ways to essentially abuse the mana system that are in the game. The games comes at you a lot sooner. So you don't have time to set up on turn three and four, like three, like it used to be like on turn three, you played like a, a, a three mana mana rock. Because yep. that was what was available. Yep, chromatic well, lantern, three, notorious. Yeah, as, chroma- the, chromatic, as the rock at the time. Yeah, <laughs> chromatic lantern was a great example. You'd play chromatic lantern as your acceleration piece on three, 
and they're you're skipping from three to mm-hmm. five for the next turn. Like, yeah, gilded lotus. And you were like, too. yeah, and you're like, sweet, check mm-hmm. me out. I am ramping. Well, now people are playing dropping rocks on turn two, like and, and like they're getting and all kinds of crap. Yeah, yeah, all kinds of stuff. They're getting way ahead of you, so it's not okay just to keep up. Well, this looks okay. Let's just have a go. Like you, no, no, you need to actively have a good hand or else yeah. you're going to find that you're not going to be in the game for long and you're going to be playing catch up. Now there are decks out there that can play catch up effectively, but you right. need to draw really, really hot off the top of your deck, like just clutch up and just get there, which is an expression. Sure. I don't actually like, I don't like saying clutch up because that sounds as awful like clunch. Like you're going to like, like clunch. And then anyway, so un- unrelated, but, um, but uh, clutch up is not really something like I like. You need to clutch up, and I'm like, mm, that's really risky here. How about you got to bear down? Yeah, I like that. You got to bear down. That's, that's a little um, bit better, I think. I like that one. It's, it's, it just sounds like how... something for. Uh, think, think of teddy bears too. Teddy bears are fun. So, um, but yeah, you got to bear down. <laughs> it is, and like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it is almost yeah. the holidays. So, yeah. Well, I got, I got, I got Talking daughters like teddy bears. That. Yeah, I got for sure. So yeah, you need to have a, a you, audience, you need to have a good starting hand to get off on the foot, to ha- give yourself a chance to play. So yeah, like it's not just okay just to keep a playable stuff. You need to have a good hand. So throw that trash back and try again. Fair enough. So we have this very simple checklist um, in terms of what sample hands we're looking for. And and this isn't like the end-all be-all, of course, but this is what we sort of came up with as a general sort of thing for every deck that we play in Commander, right? Step one, looking at the hand very, uh, very objectively, is it a total hot trash can fire, right? Is it like a no-land hand or everything? You have like all of your expensive spells in your hand and two lands or something. Is, is this even, like, this is the easy decision, right? Okay, yeah, this is unplayable. This is completely unplayable. I can't yeah. do this. Uh, yeah, no this removal. Should be, this, this, this should you know, be a no-brainer. Yeah. No removal or, like, no ways to create action for yourself. No card draw. No ways to look at cards, even surveilling, blah, blah, blah scrying, whatever. Uh, obviously, your hand might might just be totally nonsense. So then, then we go into the nuances, right? Um, especially because each color has its cycle way of, of ramping so do you have a ramp piece yes or no um if you don't is this going to break you um to like stay in the game with your opponents but then we have you know I, yeah just, yeah so like, great example your audience if like you're like everyone's big big excited about the dinosaur decks that are uh, kicking around right now if you're playing a gishath or um, I forgot what the new one is, a five mana one that discovers all the time and is kind of nutsy. Like if you're playing one of these, like a dinosaur deck that needs to ramp, if you don't have a ramp piece, this is a big deal. Like you need to say, well, I'm not doing this. Put it back. Try again. Um, if you're playing like a red, white, aggressive equipment deck, maybe you don't need the ramp piece quite so much. So, um, you know. Like, sure, it'd be nice to have, but if you got three lands and you're playing a couple of cheap uh, cheap equipment and a couple of cheap creatures, well, then maybe you're off to the races and you're okay with that. So it really depends on the context and texture of your deck. Yeah, no, for sure. And every color has a different way of looking at that aspect. I think green is the easiest yeah. to look at, right? Obviously, there's so many ways to ramp out lands. But, like, if you're in a deck, you say, like, blue-white or something, right? You're in like a yes. pretty slow, controlly sort of color combination. What are you going to do if someone starts ramping out by turn three to, to turn five and they already have five mana out on turn three because they play like a cultivate or something? Again, this is a consideration that we should have. We don't need to like tech in cards or try to dig for cards that would mess up our opponents per se when we're at a pod with friends or with our local LGS. But we can... We can think about this in a, in a in a way that will benefit us, right? As our deck is trying to do its thing. The next is again interaction of some sort. It doesn't have to necessarily be like a damnation or something, or uh, you know, like a cross on grip. But it can be some sort of way that you're impactful 
uh, in some sense with the opponents that you're with. There are times where I have like a Crowson Grip in my opening hand, but no one's playing artifacts. Like their yeah. commanders are not necessarily centered around that strategy, or they're not playing that many enchantments. Um, so there is a time where it's like my interaction in my opening hand didn't do anything the whole game. It sat there. Yeah, same thing. Like if you if your interaction doesn't line up with what what, you, what your opponents are doing on, on the table, then you need to ask yourself: Is this something I can actually keep right now? Um, right. Obviously, probably the best pieces are things that are removing uh, problematic permanents creatures. Typically, um, if you've got it, but if you've got an opponent who's you know playing a lot of artifacts, and maybe you need that crossing grip in your hand, and that's okay, and you're okay with it. Um, so you need to read the table, be familiar enough with what sort of strategies are likely being deployed. Well, I know it's just that's getting harder and harder all the time. Like Pete, because like, there's so many more commanders oh printed gosh, all the time, yeah. is there? There's um, like, but, yeah, oh, so many. There's just so much going on. Um, but, but I mean, even if it's interaction that protects your board, like say you have a path to exile in your hand, and someone like there, there's more than likely that that card will help you protect yourself from something that your opponents are playing absolutely uh, so oh do you know do you know how many commanders there are in this lost cavern of vixalon set there are 30 there are 30 in the primary main set uh-huh 30 30 new ones and then if you want to get into the lost caverns there's 10 more there like the the commander product mm -hmm. so there's 40 mm -hmm. new commanders for this one product alone um and you By need to way, be familiar with what they're all doing. It's crazy pants. There's also over 2,000 legendary creatures now. Uh, oh my goodness. Like, I looked up on Scryfox, so looking at new commanders that I potentially want to build, and I'm like, I can't do this right now. My brain's going to explode. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's tough. Um, okay, the next one we are sort of covered earlier, which is how many lands do you really need on average? Again, that depends on if you're proactive or reactive. Um, and then the final one, which I like, is something that's to windmill slam on the table. Ha ha ha. This is what I'm about to do to you. In my opinion, this could be anything from a fantastic equipment that gets through against your opponents. It could be um, your commander itself, if you're able to curve out in an appropriate manner. It could yeah. be a card like Gallagher's, right? It's not a necessarily crazy mm -hmm. card, but if it goes off the rails, it goes off the rails. Absolutely. So these are cards that we're looking at in our decks that are like... Like, for example, for me, um, Tireless Provisioner is a card that comes to mind. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like, or a right. Lotus Cobra or something like that. Sure. Like, these sure. are cards that um, I like those sorts of cards better rather than, like, playing, like, a big, scary bomb. Sure. Like, if you play, like, a like, if you on turn four can, bl can play Children, um, the scary one from Dominary United. Yeah. yeah, Apocalypse. Like, that's a really impactful card. That's a that 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 one that that thing wins games, but you're also playing it into a board where everyone's probably got something to kill it, mm -hmm. and so you're just you're putting your A plus target on the table with a bullseye saying "Come and get it." A Lotus sure. Cobra or a Tyler's Provisioner or a Gallagher's or something else is going to be a little bit like it's going to be like a B target. Season like Pyromancer, Season yeah. Pyromancer, right? Like. Yeah, in my in red are, decks, uh, these are strong cards, but they're not going to like necessarily set off all the bells sure. for your opponent, so they immediately fire off something, mm -hmm. meaning you then have an opportunity to get some value out of it. Right. Um. So, like you know, but you need something to play that's going to like really put your your game plan in in, a, in action, make your opponents respect that you're at the table and you've come to play. Um, because otherwise they're gonna you might find that you get ignored, which is right. sometimes a benefit, but sometimes is um a real detriment because they're just they've discounted you entirely. And um they're not going to look at you seriously until you have to like I can broker a deal at any point, or there's some sort of threat assessment that's going on the table where they're you know, they've deemed you're not a threat. Like this could be a problem uh, if you're looking to be taken seriously on the table. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is an, uh, like the dream example, but I was able to dash out Ragavan on turn two and three in a game recently. And it was really nice. But then later on, the card became irrelevant. So I just used him as a blocker, right? Yeah. Where, like, I think people are so also quickly to windmill slam that shouldered on turn four when they probably should hold it until they get to turn seven or eight. Yeah. Um, so that's the other consideration with these mulligans is like, what are you going to do past the sort of curve out, right? Like, 
what, what are you going to be living off the top? Do you have ways to sort of, uh, are you going to hold that card in your hand? Like I hold, I held city of, um, that, that triple mana enchantment city, city on fire. Yeah. The entire yeah. game, this game was like an hour and a half. I didn't play it the entire game. It was in my hand, literally the entire yeah, game that, in my opening that hand. Feels, feels bad. It, it wasn't bad. necessarily that it was more. So I was waiting for the right time to cast it. And I just never got that time to cast it. Yeah. It was just yeah. the game flip flops so many different times. There's not much you can do about that. But that's another example, right? Of like a bomb card in your hand, opening hand, but nothing happens with it. So, yeah. Um, the the next part for that. So we have those sort of three or four things to look for, um, in the initial hand, and then we go into you know, can I stop my opponent with what we have? Um, am I able to draw into it? Which we sort of covered earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I guess. The other more important thing for that initial hand is, do I have ways to shuffle my deck? If this hand is pretty slow, or if this hand isn't that great, but it's passable, right? It passes that sort of checklist we just sort of covered. I think that's the other underrated thing, is people are very um, very quick to play their fetch lands or their Evolving Wilds as quickly as possible. Evolving Wilds is slightly different because it comes in tapped. But shuffling your deck matters a lot in this game now. So Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're, you made it, the other night Pete and I were prep, preparing for the show and Pete made a really good point about sequencing lands, particularly fetch lands. And there's a lot of commander players, particularly casual players, that don't utilize the full effectiveness of your fetch land to maximize the value. And there's lots of ways that you can get, you know, really good value out of your fetch land just by virtue of holding it a little bit longer and playing it not necessarily as your first land, but as land three or four or whatever out of your hand. Right. Because you may have an opportunity to cast a brainstorm and then fetching away, using a fetch land on a brainstorm is really powerful or a sensei's divining top or some other way to manipulate the top of your deck. You might have right. other reasons that you want to, you know, clear the top of your deck for, let's say your opponents, you know, tuck something on top of your deck and you're like, well, I don't really want that right now because I just kind of time walked myself. Well, now you have a way to maybe shuffle it away and draw something new. There's mm -hmm. lots of potential gains from, from your fetch lands and sequence them in such a way that you're going to get more value. So as much as they seem like very simple cards to play because they are, well, tap them, sack it, go and get your land. Right. They also have a lot of power around manipulating the top of your deck that we can tap into and get great and to great effect. Can I give another quick example? So absolutely. So, yeah. so like it's like Soul Ring, right? I've seen so many players play Soul Ring on turn one, but there's no need if you have two lands in hand. You can play it on turn two, and people won't look at you as a threat. But if you play it immediately and then you play another rock after that, people are gonna go, "Oh dang! Like I need to solve this person's before they become a problem." Yeah. So I think holding them again, like if you have the nut, like the nut draw or whatever. Then you should play it as quickly as possible if you're able to get ahead really quickly. But I usually play my Soul Ring like turn three, Bruce. I know that's weird to say if I have it in my opening hand, but I never play it turn one or two. I think there's value in playing from a psychological standpoint, sandbagging yep. that and waiting a turn or two. Yeah. Um, unless you're you're going to be able to actively implement it to great advantage, though you know, land into Soul Ring into Arcane Signet next turn into five drop, like. Okay, like that's a reason to play Sol Ring on turn one. Yeah. But if you don't have a follow-up play on turn two, how many times have you seen this? Like Pete, you go turn one land, Sol Ring, pass, then you play a land and you go pass turn on turn two, and you have got four yep. land up, but can't you don't have a play because uh, you were so aggressive with your initial hand that you have no action yeah. after that. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Um and that's the other thing we want people to consider when, when we when we discuss this is know like what you're up against in general, mm -hmm. even when you pick that first hand, like what colors are you playing? Even if you don't know the commanders at all, what they do, maybe you've never seen these new Doctor Who commanders, for example, and you have no idea what they do. At least you know, like, okay, this mono red chaos card, I'm sure they're going to be a little bit slower out the gate, but once they snowball, they snowball into an avalanche. It's difficult to deal with them, Right. Or like you're playing a deck that has three colors. It might be a little bit tricky if they don't have green to ramp out effectively and play their commander, like an Ishin player, right? Very aggressive de deck normally. 
So yes. it would be probably profitable to keep a path to exile in your hand or some sort of interaction to slow them down a tiny bit. Um, and then just considering who you're playing with, is it your good friends? Do you know their decks? Like when Bruce and I play together and I play Jaxus, he knows that he's going to probably target me immediately when Jax hits the field. I you know have I mean? to concede. I, 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 I have, have to, to agree. It's not, I know. A, it's not a perfect deck, but like it, it's a lot of fun to play, but it's very difficult when it snowballs for people to deal with. But I also know that as a mono-red player, I'm going to need to p pick a hand that actually does something, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I don't, I'm going to be just wrecked. I won't be able to play a thing, and I won't have the speed that other colors have. Um, the final thing we wanted really quick before we go into these really... We had some cool little sample hands. We went off a of Moxfield, some of our decks is um, we want to reinforce, and Bruce, you made this really good point, reinforce the value of partners as commanders looking into yeah. mulligans for this sort of strategy. Because we, we play partners sometimes for the particular effects, or we play like the backgrounds, but we also don't think sometimes, I've been guilty of this for sure, in three-color decks that I've partnered, what the mulligans look like because of the way the deck runs. Yeah, I think one of the things that we for often forget about with partners is that they're an extension, an extension of your hand. And so if you have one card in your command zone, you have a starting starting hand of seven cards plus your commander, yeah. which is great. You have eight cards at, at your disposal. If you, have a if you have a partner commander, you could potentially now have a ninth or even so like a companion. So yeah. those, those, that, that additional option gives you the ability to hopefully make plays that are going to be more impactful. We don't think about what that means in terms of win percentage very readily, but we've seen it in competitive formats when Commander yeah. and sorry, Companions essentially broke the game because right. it gave you an extended an extension to your hand that yeah, was super eight powerful. You had instead of seven, and you also had to turn three play every single time that you played that Companion. So no matter what, you could, you could play a, a, a subpar hand but if you get lures to your hand for example that's probably the most famous one i can think of it was yes. pretty much over right like like there yeah. was not much you could do to interact with that Lur well, same uh, thing Lutri like as well. Lutri, well that's why Lutri kind of got banned because Lutri, like right. you had the automatic you know spell you would have and have available to you if you're in a deck so these so these sorts of things that extend your hand are not to be overlooked and Figure the figure prominently in your calculating the math around your mulligan because you do have these cards available to you and you need to consider those as well too. That's one of the reasons to play commanders that have lower mana values. If you're playing a two drop or a three drop commander, now you have something you have a play you can play on turn three. Now mm -hmm. maybe that's not what you want to do because you don't really want your commander to die two, three, four times, right. but. The option exists to you. You have a game action you can take. You have an engine you can probably put online if that's what you want to do, which is really, at the end of the day, we all just want agency over what we're doing on the battlefield. And so that means we need to have cards that are able to be deployed and that we can make game actions with. So, yeah, look, think about your command zone. Those cards with with partner are important and could really, you know, you might have a teamer colored deck, so blue, green, blue, green, red, and you might have a teamer colored commander. Well, maybe it makes more sense for you to get two partners that give you a similar result and, and color combination um, with slightly different ability, but, yeah. you know, give you two cards in your command zone instead of one. Yeah, I mean, any any commanders that draw cards, any mm -hmm. commanders that surveil, any commanders that uh mill you know any any of that extra information is super valuable like that's why i love rutstein so much because i don't know what's going in my yard but i know i'm getting something off of it so it doesn't even matter it's true it's true so, um just quickly and that reminds me uh do you want to go back and forth with these sample hands or do you want me to go first with let's go commander? through let's, let's talk let's talk through yours first sure. and then okay. we'll go move on to what i've got um, and good. so let's let's just let's let's, let's lay this out here. What yeah. deck are you using this? Is this the Rutstein deck you're using as a premise here? Yeah, because of how much um, variance is in the deck, it's really really difficult. You really have to be meticulous with your mulligan choices. 
Right, which was an important audience. So if you want to hear the breakdown of Pete's uh, uh, deck, there is an episode, and I'm going to go find it for you, but one of our previous episodes to dealing about the graveyard was... it was, 154? I, uh, it was Halloween episode, so it was like... Uh, so it was about a month ago now. So I'm just going to look at episodes, episode lists. So anyway, while you find it... Um, Rutstein is three mana, mill a card when it enters or at the beginning of your upkeep. So a consideration here is, can I play him on turn three? What happens after I play him? What will I do? So like, sample hands, this first one, it looks good on the surface, but it's not very good. We have Takanuma, Abandoned Mire, land, Lotus Veil. Has a land with drawback, but if you're able to get it out, gives you three mana of one color. Entomb, Damnation, Heroic Intervention, Bootlegger Stash, and Assassin's Trophy. Bootlegger Stash, obviously, very good card. Heroic Intervention, great for protecting my stuff. Damnation, Assassin's Trophy are removal spells. And Entomb is a, is a faux tutor for my deck, right? But I can't play Rutstein very quickly. I don't... Lotus Field, or Lotus Veil is not able to be played because I don't have two lands to sacrifice to it. Yep. And Takanuma is a utility land that I'd rather ha- keep in my hand for later. So I, this is like an easy mulligan yeah. choice. So I just put this back. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, this is this it. is. I remember when we were talking about this preemptively before the show. Their audience, uh, Pete, showing this 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 land con- or this deck or this hand. I'm like, that's you know, this is a, this is an easy one. This is a slam dunk. He right. can deploy nothing. Um, you know, he's going to get stuck on potentially stuck on one land. Um, he's got some interesting interaction if he can if he draws well, but. That's a big if, and you don't really want to leave it to if. So mm-hmm. this this would have to go back. Um, also, game, audience, yeah. this this hold on. This is this oh, was episode one fifty two, episode one fifty two, where we, Pete went through his uh, his Redstein deck. So anyway, let's see uh, his second hand. What do we got? Second hand is interesting too because now it's the opposite problem, right? You have a uh, forest crystal vein, which is another land that you can sack for two colors, overgrown tomb, twilight mire, and exploration. Realms Uncharted, and Mortality Sphere. So this hand is a keep only because of the fact that I can play Rothstein on turn two, but after that, it's uh, kind of scary to think about because I only have one piece of removal, and if he dies, I might be able to recast him. But if I am aggressive like that, people might point all of the ammo at me um, because of the fact that I played him so quickly, and I get extra value every time a card hits my graveyard. Um, when he is active. So I would keep this just to see what would happen. Because that's a hand that I've never actually experienced yet with this deck. And all the times I played the deck. So it'd be fun to see how that would work. So I just know audience. like this, and as, as someone who doesn't necessarily know the Redstein deck as well. My attention is immediately grabbed by the exploration. Um, knowing that I can get multiple lands into play quickly. Um, to try and break parity on mana resources so that would be the goal here and with a the hand with four lands in it and an exploration i'd be very interested in this um so the interesting thing too is based on that hand realms uncharted becomes valuable because i can get the shire which is the green land that makes a food and if i have extra ramp i can make foods now potentially and people would probably give me that land instead of putting it into my graveyard if i put like some dangerous lands in there like ball coffers with the four choices that i make so now I am thinking ahead with this with this particular land, uh, mm. this particular package. Um, the next deck uh, to move on because again this is just sort of something I would try. The next deck is a deck I have uh, in real life. It's um, an equipment deck with a Kiri for uh, Fearless Voyager. So the the goal of the deck really is to get a Kiri out as quickly as you can. Start to draw cards off of her by attacking with your creatures, and play some really good equipment to smash face quickly. Um, and put your opponents down to zero with their life totals. So the first hand on the surface looks like I'm missing a color. It's actually a very good hand because I have Stoneforge Mystic as well as Relic Seeker on the draw. Um, Boros Charm to protect my board, and Wyleth is a, is a draw engine. So if I'm able to resolve Stoneforge on two and then tutor for an equipment and put it out immediately, I can sort of solve the problem of potentially not having enough lands to play my stuff. And my uh, Michaelson Garden eventually fixes me anyway. 
So it's not an, a great hand by any means, but Command Tower in an opening hand is always nice to see. And the curve is very low in this deck, so I'm not necessarily concerned about that. The second hand is um, Arid Mesa, Spire of Industry, Microsynth Gardens, Colossus Hammer, Talisman of Conviction, Sword of Light and Shadow, and Wrath of God. So I was telling Bruce before the show, looking at this hand again, because at first I was like, this is a keep because I have a, a rock <coughs> on turn two and a board wipe and what have you. Like, two very good equipment mm -hmm. on the surface. But I can't, like, justify keeping this because it's very, very slow and this deck is trying to go quickly. And Light yeah. and Shadow is only good against certain matchups and also is very slow. If I don't have any creatures in my graveyard, it doesn't really retain any value. Colossus yeah. Hammer is also incredibly difficult to equip. So it really doesn't do anything for me to have a board wipe in my hand in this particular instance, with this particular deck, right? So some things that I've considered now in a lot of the games I've played is like really considering mulligans now, based on this information. And then, Bruce, you have one deck for us that we've seen before on the show as well, haven't we? Yeah, so Sha Shauna's Purifying Blade, I believe, which was episode... I've forgotten which one it was. Um, anyway... I will find the episode in due, in due course, I'm sure, audience. So Shauna Purifying Blade is my Bant Cycling deck. And uh, so most of the cards in it have some measure of cycling on it. So the first hand, which is, again, a clear example of what you cannot keep, has a Beneath the Sands, uh, which is a two and a green. Uh, search your library for a, a basic land. Uh, put it into your hand, I believe. And then there's Vizier of Tumbling Sands which is a cycler. Uh, it also untaps or taps things. Uh, Valiant Rescuer, Wilt, Replicating Ring as a mana rock, three mana mana rock, Drake Haven, and Eternal Witness. Notice there's not a single land in this hand there, audience. So this would be like totally un unmanageable and without any merit worth keeping. So if I were to keep this, I'd be a fool. Um, I would lose my game before it's turn five. I'm going to wager. Um, the second hand I have here, and there's really nothing else to be said about that. That's just an unplayable hand because of the fact there's no land to, to enable any of it. <clears throat> then, uh, so the second hand, we have Countervailing Winds. Counterspell, but it also has, uh, so it's like a, it's like a Mana Drain, but, no, no, Mana Leak, but it has the Cycling Cost of two. Forest, Abandoned Sarcophagus, which is, allows you to play Cycling Cards from your graveyard. Uh, Sylvan Reclamation, which is a five mana uh, instant, but it also has basic land cycling for two. Repopulate, which is a an instant for uh, one and a green. It's interesting, but also a cycling forest, and then a timeless dragon. So I would all this one seems like it could be playable. It's like fringe doable because you can play your two forests on turn one and then follow it up on turn two and cycle the Sylvan Reclamation to go and find another basic land, uh, and then you can have access to abandoned sarcophagus and whatnot. Um, I would probably also put this one back because the the fact that you're trying to hope that you bear down and draw well um, in order to make this hand really playable and stand out is probably a real setback for you and uh, is, is going to be a situation where there will be moments where this deck, you're going to be non-competitive in the game uh, and non-factor because you just don't have any way to make things happen. Like you, mm -hmm. you're very much at right. the whims and whimsies of of the hypergeometric calculator. You're and, praying, you may and, not get and cycling also is difficult because it's not shuffling. So, and like if you just keep drawing into nothing, it it'll probably feel bad if those cards become relevant later. Yes, and if someone blows up um, the sarcophagus too, you're kind of out of. I'm up. I'm really up a creek. So let's move on to a third one, which hopefully is playable. So we have a, a planes. We have a Scattered Groves, which is a green-white, um, I call them bicycle lands, where they a two-mana to cycle it. <laughs> That's good. Containment Construct, which is a, an, a useful little uh, construct, which for two-mana, you have the, it's a 2-1, and it says whenever you discard a card, uh, you may exile that card, and you can cast it this turn. So useful in a card, in a set, or in a, uh, a deck where you're, you're discarding a lot of cards with cycling. Desert of the Indomitable, which is a green land that uh, you can also cycle for one and a green. You have another Plains, and you have Wilt, and you also have Cast Out. So this doesn't inherently look particularly um, enthusiastic uh, as far as a opening hand, but 
this seems it has a lot more promise than anything we've seen yet. So it's you know you lead off with the scattered groves on turn one into a plains and the construct on turn two, and then you're probably playing the the land the, the plains and then cycling the desert of the indomitable to see if you what you're going to find. And um, it's, you know the nice thing with cycling is it's going to give you a chance to see a lot more cards than some of your opponents. And this this sort of land is perfect to cycle. Because it comes into play tapped, so it's definitely inferior to lots of things. Um, but in the event that you get jammed and you need to run it, you can play it on, on as a land. Um, but you know, you can cycle it away and find a basic or find something else that's going to help you dig a little bit deeper to help smooth out your stuff. So um, you know, it's this is it also has some interaction that I think is is pertinent. The wilt and the cast out are both very relevant. Uh, cards to this sort of deck where you've got a way to deal with an early threat so if something comes down and somebody threatens you is they threaten to to put your life total under pressure you do have a way to answer it sure. same thing with wilts there's a lot of uh troubling enchantments or artifacts that are out there that are going to let's say someone plays an early smothering tithe yeah, you, you burn can't it. leave that <laughs> you can't yeah you you're quite gonna you're gonna be very happy to use your wilt on a smothering tithe to prevent that player from running amok on the table. So you know the deck um, as well, which is a good thing, right? Like you know what you're looking for. Yeah. Um is what I'm getting out of this is uh that hand looks like if I saw that hand I'd be like I'm throwing this back. But because you know yeah. how the deck performs, you're like I can I can try this for sure. I'm missing a color, yeah. but I can try this. Missing the color is not particularly a game breaker because as many as many decks lean into their commander quite heavily. Um, this one, um, Shauna is a complementary piece rather than an integral sure. piece to what the deck's doing. Right. So if I don't play the deploy Shauna on turn three, I'm okay with that. Um, I need to more. I would really like to be interested in getting my my cycling game online yeah. and being able to you know look at more cards rather than necessarily resolving Shauna. Uh, Shauna will happen in due course. Uh, I'm not too worried about that. And every time I played this deck, at some point I put Shauna on the battlefield. It's The question is, do I need... I need to probably look at more cards to find more things to do right now. So out of the three hands, this has the most potential. And yes. uh, it has the most abilities of cycling that you have in those three hands. So that's nice, because it actually... Your deck will do the thing it's supposed to do. Um, mm -hmm. Which, final, like our little final sort of uh, takeaway, I guess, for this discussion is um, don't underestimate the power of the mulligan. Know what colors you're in, because monocolor decks are a little bit easier than mm -hmm. uh, multicolor decks to sort of gauge that. And finally, um, not only practice with your deck, but don't underestimate the fact that uh, being patient with your mulligan will help your overall game plan when you're with random people you've never met before, or commanders you've never seen before. Uh, it, it always feels bad when your deck doesn't do anything in a game. So consider this when you uh, next shuffle up and play with your friends. Absolutely. Very well said, Pete. Okay, folks. That's going to draw our show to a close this week. <laughs> Pardon me. Thanks very much for stopping by and spending this time with us. We love to uh, have our audience interact with us. So. If you want to send us an email about your late recent game, about mulliganing or tough choices you made, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, all the way to reach out to us are in the show notes. Uh, we're on social media. We have email addresses. All the mm -hmm. all the ways are there to check us out. Um, so also, if you want to find where you can listen to the show, of course, you listen to the Lotus, lotuscouncil.com or your favorite podcast app. So right, folks. Next week we got more goodness on the on on deck. Pete, what do you think we should be tackling next week? Any any bright ideas? Well, uh, just to disclaim, we will have some guest speakers uh, in 2024 as oh, of now, tentatively. Yes, so we'll probably take a break for the the holidays uh, towards the end of this month. We'll probably put out at least two episodes before then because we do have a good chunk of December to get through. We're still sort of working out what we wanted to cover. Um, because we're trying to, you know, switch things up. Um, we probably bring some people on who like to showcase some decks and stuff. And, uh, 
any any suggestions that the audience has would be great. Um, we never get tired discussing this stuff. I'm thinking, yep. Bruce, we can do a sort of a New Year's sort of reflection period. I liked what mm. we did for our 150th episode. I rewatched that. I don't like hearing myself talk, to be honest. But I wanted to hear, like, <laughs> just so I can get a better feel of, like, our discussion and how we handle Absolutely. ourselves. Because um, there's always room for improvement, but also room for new ideas that might spring out of old episodes or old Absolutely. things we sort of briefly discussed in passing. So big things for us uh, coming into the new year. And we are so happy to be here with you. And maybe we make your commute a little easier this week. Take care, everybody. And have a good yeah. rest of your week. All right? Be good, folks. Take care.